Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, December the 19th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Before we start today, I want to thank everyone who's already sent a question in for our Ask Me Anything podcast, which we're going to put up during the Christmas holidays. You do still have 24 hours to ask our politics team, and me too, any questions at all. And we are going to make our best attempt to answer those questions honestly and comprehensively. You can direct those questions towards the podcast team as a whole or to a specific individual, and you can mail it to me directly at hlinehan at irishtimes.com or you can at me on Twitter at hlinehan. We will particularly favour uh, questions in spoken audio form, so do feel free to record your question and mail it to me as an attachment. Now, on today's show, we are going to look back at some of the key themes and questions of the political year with Fia Kelly, Harry McGee and Jennifer Bray. I started with Fia and I asked him to name one thing that he didn't expect to happen in 2018, but that did actually come to pass. I suppose I assumed this year that Sinn Féin would not stand a candidate against Michael D. Higgins, and they did. Um, I, I, my assumption that they wouldn't was based on a number of factors. One, that they wouldn't win. Two, that they had a, a strong chance of performing very poorly against him. And then that's kind of people who'd been around the party for some time were privately saying that they didn't think it was a good idea to run somebody against him, that they liked Michael D. Higgins himself, that... He spoke their language in a number of uh, ways. He's green, he's left, uh, he speaks to the young. And then they did run someone uh, in the presidential election perform very poorly. But I suppose I always, I, I, when Mary Lou MacDonald was saying, you know, we think there should be a contest for a while, I was kind of sceptical and saying, she's just saying that to say it. And at the end, we'll decide there's no point in standing somebody against Michael T. And was it her fault? Was it her call? I think it was largely her call. Um, people around the party from... You know, people who are new in the parliamentary party to people who have been there for years and years were initially saying, we don't really see the point of this. But as always with Sinn Féin, once the decision was taken, everybody bought into it that people who you've been previously speaking to privately who were saying this isn't a great idea were now fully behind their candidate, Leany Rita, and wouldn't brook any criticism of it. So it was definitely a Mary Lou MacDonald decision. That was one thing that surprised me this year. Uh, and I suppose it went against what I thought would happen. Jennifer. Um, an election. I just was absolutely convinced there was going to be an election. Uh-huh. Um, I think if you look around, go back to the time of the Strategic Communications Unit and all the controversy around that, um, some of the exchanges between Michal Martin and Leo Varadkar became incredible, incredibly personal, I think. Um, I took a note of one or two of them, just to remind you. Um, this was from Leo Varadkar, where he said... There have been a lot of slurs bandied around. A lot of what the leader of the opposition has said has been personalised. It has been vituperative and it has even been venomous towards me and my staff. Um, And then Micheál Martin had a dig back where he said the Taoiseach has a deep, ongoing and overwhelming obsession with spin. And it's one he can get away with for a while um, and uh, blah, 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 etc, etc. Yeah. Then they renewed hostilities. Michal Martin said uh, Varadkar was prickly and he had an authoritarian streak. This went on all summer. 
And um, I just thought that the relations were becoming more and more frosty. And when you throw into the mix major scandals, like let's say, for example, the broadband scandal, um, threatened motion of no confidence in Owen Murphy, um, the Morris McCabe controversy involving for, uh, Francis Fitzgerald, all of that stuff. It's actually kind of incredible that there wasn't an election, even though it's not that incredible in another way because everybody looks at the polls, no matter how much they say they don't. Um, so, yeah, I think an election. Um, now, I know we've been talking about it for three years and now we're talking about it now for another year. But At least. Yeah, I'm shocked it didn't happen given those very bad relations between the two parties. That they're just not natural bedfellows anyway. But the two men clearly dislike each other. Harry. I see my microphone is propped on a book called Heroic Failure by <laughs> Fenton O'Toole. It's either the Irish Easy Times plug. recycling uh, policy or else it's a message that's subliminally directed uh, towards me. Well, I thought there wouldn't be a general election this year. And, oh, I'm right. I was right about that. Uh, I'm right usually Can about I most things, but when I'm wrong, I, <laughs> usually kept, I usually keep my trap shut about that. Um, I, I felt for a long time that there wouldn't be an election until 2020. I think Fiat has been of the same opinion. Um, just... Yeah, you've been on the record about that. Yeah, and yeah. that was right. But I've been spectacularly wrong about so many other things. That's why you one... cherish this one all the, all the, all the better, <laughs> Harry, when you're right. I'm holding on to that one like a, little, like a dear baby. Um, I can, I, can I just ask you about that? Because earlier in the year, you were saying that uh, Fianna Fáil, well, about a year ago, you were saying Fianna Fáil were pretty well set in terms of the facts on the ground, mm-hmm. their opportunities at the next general election, whenever it fell. Th- th- that was not the general perception as the year went on and the polls no, seemed to, seem to favour Fianna Fáil. I think, th- I think they slid back a little as the year went on. I think Leo Varadkar uh, proved himself in the past year to be a, a person who was able to live up to the job of being a Taoiseach. And I think he, he definitely gave a fill-up to Fine Gael and gave Fine Gael a bounce in, in the polls. You have to distinguish between the national polls, what people feel about the government and the legislature and the big questions and what's happening on the ground in constituencies because there's always that component mm. in Irish politics. And Fianna Fáil have been probably better placed. They're, that's because they're coming back from a dismal election in 2011. And there are lots of rural constituencies particularly, but also those in Dublin uh, where the party has the capacity uh, to gain extra seats. Uh, Fine Gael no longer have that huge capacity to make spectacular gains unless something really big happens mm. uh, or, and unless uh, Leo Varadkar turns out to be a kind of a Charles de Gaulle type figure in politics and it's a little bit early to be uh, making any predictions like that in relation to Leo Varadkar. The things I got wrong, um, I thought we'd have a presidential election. There's a list. <laughs> <laughs> and what we had was a presidential coronation. Uh, I, I thought that Michael D. Higgins would really be tested uh, uh, fighting a second term. I think the expenses... I think, you know, there was no uh, scrutiny, and that's probably our fault as much as anybody else, of him over the course of mm. uh, seven years. And I think that over the next seven years, I think kind of, there's a responsibility on uh, the media uh, to do that. I also thought that the abortion referendum would be much closer than it actually was. And I was out on the ground a lot, and I, 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 I always thought that it was going to pass, but I thought the margin was going to be tighter. And in defence of my analysis in relation to that, I think there was a big swing over towards the yes side in the last 10 days to week. Of yeah, I mean, if I were going to answer this question, that would be the point that I'd say I, I think I got wrong. Is that based on the, you know, the evidence mm-hmm. which is available to us in many ways and in, in, in the form of the opinion polls? And also, I suppose, a more general kind of, you know, received wisdom and one should always be careful of, of that, 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 that these things tighten in the last few days, well, you know, rather than swing one way or the other. In recent years where that has been not the case. 
the marriage referendum was the same thing. Yeah, in a way, you can say that the marriage referendum follows a follow quite a yeah. similar pattern. And but the but same, there, was a, there was a previous pattern in these uh, in these culture war referendums. The divorce one in the mid nineties was that was the classic example where they where they got very tight towards mm. the end. Where it was the opposite way here, and perhaps people haven't focused quite enough on the fact that the difference between the final opinion polls and the actual vote was was really substantial. Mm. If it had swung the other way, the the, the proposition would have been easily and defeated. Anecdotally, what you picked up around that period of that final week of that campaign was people saying that opinion was hardening but what you look back now what it seemed to be was there was a a majority in favour of repeal anyway and then the further hardening of opinion was that uncertain vote that added to the majority so it wasn't the case that it was in the balance and it swung one way it was Mm -hmm. firmly winning and it won even more handsomely in the last week or two. Those who who were kind of wavering I think the big issue for them was the 12 weeks I mean these were people who would be you know mask goers, people who would be innately conservative by nature. And for them, that was a big ask to, to allow an abortion uh, regime where uh, terminations were allowed up to 12 weeks. I think the, the, the other side just gave them no comfort. They gave them no comfort for fatal fetal abnormalities, for any of the extremist cases that were highlighted uh, during the course of the campaign. And they also failed to convince them that 12 weeks was, was too long of a period. And a lot of those people, people say, oh, this is going to look very bad for Fianna Fáil, for example. But a lot of people who voted yes in the referendum would have gone to mass the following Sunday mm. and would go and vote for Fianna Fáil in the next election. They don't see any kind of contradiction between the stance they took in the sure, referendum. And that's, and that's, so that's I think very to draw, much a picture uh, of modern Ireland and the way... Yeah, to draw a direct correlation yeah. between the referendum and everything else that happens in Irish life would be a mistake, in my view. I think that you have to kind of distinguish each issue and look at it But it is interesting rights. though, Jennifer, isn't it, when given a binary choice in a referendum, and people are critical of referendums for, for, for this reason, that they're, that they're so black and white, was that the, um, the, the anti-repeal side was trapped into this... 100% defense of the of the current situation and it, and I think some information came out after the campaign itself you know that there were tensions within you know uh, within, within the pro life movement terms, about yeah. how what what way to approach those kind of questions like fatal fetal abnormalities and they were kind of boxed in in that way yeah I think they were kind of boxed in from the beginning and I guess on the question of sort of binary choices the difference in this referendum obviously is that uh, the people of Ireland got to see some of that legislation before they voted. So they knew a little bit more about what a yes or a no would entail. So it wasn't as binary in that sense. And also, like, in, in terms of the change and the, the swing more towards yes, like there were some really pivotal moments in the campaign that you can't discount as having contributed towards that, such as, you know, Micheál Martin's speech, um, Simon Coveney's U-turn on the 12 weeks, um, and even Simon Harris's performance in primetime. Um, so you're kind of talking about this middle ground, really, who maybe would have been in favour of liberalising the abortion regime in general, but would also want to balance it with the desire to kind of protect the unborn. And this 12 weeks proposal was obviously major. And, and to get to grips with it, to have someone like Simon Harris pointing out very clearly, well, the, the reason why they did it, which was because of the abortion pill, I think that was really kind of major. In terms the, of the, the argument was made at the outset of this campaign, going back, let's say, a couple of years before, you know, the, the Constitutional Assembly and those, was that the, um, the, um, the, the pro-choice side would have to move towards the centre ground to kind of to take on board their concerns because while, while Irish people wanted to see a liberalisation, they didn't necessarily want to see a complete liberalisation. But the fact is that the pro-choice side managed to move the centre ground to their position. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing is that people knew very little about abortion, even though it's dominated Irish public discourse for 30 years. People knew very little about what was entailed mm. with abortion. Um, and, I mean, if you looked at, during the course of the committee, you saw the likes of Hildegard Nocton, who would have gone in um, uh, on a 
she would have described herself as pro-life and she came out in favour of not alone the repeal uh, but also the legislation because she had known, she didn't know about the abortion pill and the, the, what had changed in terms of technology. And there was also far more detailed and better explanation of what actually happens during the first 12 weeks. And um, people were able to see that, you know, you weren't talking about a fully formed fetus who was sentient and stuff. You're talking about a fetus at the very early stages of development. So people were able to, that, that information for the first time, was available in a way that perhaps it wasn't available 30 years ago where people said, you know, all human life is sacred, abortion is wrong, and didn't look at all the kind of the nuances and the kind of incrementalism uh, that, that such debates on such yeah, a tangled fact, issue yeah, entails. Or the fact that the Eight Amendment itself actually wasn't preventing abortion in the, at all. It That's didn't true, mean that Ireland was an abortion-free country. It was a reality. That's true. I want to move on to our second uh, question. I'm going to put it to you first, Jennifer. Tell me one person in Irish politics who impressed you this year and why. Um, I... This might be a bit left centre, but I, I was really impressed by Catherine Connolly this year, um, the independent TD. Um, I think she has been excellent in the Public Accounts Committee and very, very clear and concise on the floor of the doll. The Public Accounts Committee has come in for a lot of criticism this year in terms of how it uh, conducts its work. Showboating. Yeah, and how it questions TD, um, uh, senior, senior civil servants, um, whether they be from the Department of Justice or whether they be from Department of Health, etc., um, so, and there has been criticism, if you go back to the cervical check scandal, about um, how they conducted themselves um, and how that filtered out to affect those, wom- those women and those families. Um, but I think she has always been excellent on it. I think she's never really lost the run of herself. Um, we've seen her get to the heart of the issue on things like presidential spending, um, the strategic communications unit. In the Dáil, she's had some standout contributions on TUM, on housing, on the Eighth Amendment. Um, on Karanua, sort of things that maybe wouldn't be the biggest political issue of the day, but still are major political issues. So I would pick Catherine Connolly. As a parliamentarian, basically. Yeah. yeah. I will go slightly outside the realm of pure politics and taking the wider governmental system if I can. I think, you know, Jennifer talked about senior civil servants there and they, they kind of, hard question they get in committees and sometimes they're held to account at the Public Council Committee and they're criticised unfairly sometimes. The person I think who is impressed this year is our Brexit Sherpa, um, John Callan, not a TD, but is the second Secretary General of the Department of Taoiseach and quietly goes about his business in a very efficient manner. His command of detail is uh, something to behold when you, sometimes we get these briefings after a big event and you come in and he tells you exactly what's going on. But I think he, he, the reason I, I would single him out is that he's never front and centre doesn't seek limelight as some senior public servants have in recent years. It's not, hasn't been unknown for senior people to go off and give speeches at conferences and all this type of thing. Does his job very quietly, very efficiently, and I think has to take huge credit for obviously all going well if there is a withdrawal agreement, if it does contain a backstop. That's a big if. Big if. This is the thing that, the, the, that Ireland is poised between a triumph and some class of overreach. And I think if this goes well, he deserves huge credit for that, for the manner in which he's gone about his business, not just this year, but since the uh, referendum in the UK passed. Going all the way going back. Going all the way back. Because an interesting you know, part of the uh, increasingly heated criticism of the Irish position from the Brexit side in the UK is this argument that everything changed utterly when Enda Kenny left and Leo Varadkar and Simon Coveney came in and they started throwing their weight around. Which is not true. It's just... Like this, this kind of red herring gets thrown up the whole time about the Irish just want unity and the Irish want to take Northern Ireland and Martin Selmire wants to punish the UK by taking the North off. And that's not true. If you look at 
one of Kenny's last moves on the European stage was to secure this thing called the Kenny text, if you remember that, if there is unity in the future, that Northern Ireland would automatically come into the European Union. Like, that, I suppose, was an obvious play on some class of prospect of Irish unity in the coming decades. It's, it was more explicit than anything that has been done under Varadkar and Coveney. So it's just not true. And Kenny himself actually gave a speech uh, this year. I think he was named as European of the Year uh, or something. And he was very strong in his views out of office and they tallied what he said in office. It's just that the, the timing of Varadkar's ascension to the Department of Taoiseach coincided with the timing of May's general election and then everything changed that the dynamic in London changed, so the dynamic in Dublin had to change as well. Harry, who impressed you this year? Well, I think if you um, look at politics like Vic in a kind of a slightly wider sphere, I think um, the person who just had a huge impact on me during the year was Vicky Phelan. I just thought she was just extraordinary. A, a person who had suffered from cervical cancer, became a, an articulate, uh, passionate uh, sp- spokesperson for that cohort uh, of women and the, the way in which the system and the Irish... Uh, um, uh, the government and the Irish medical profession uh, had left them down and she's continued to do it uh, during uh, the year in a very kind of graceful, uh, in a very uh, uh, dignified uh, manner. I think that once Vicky Whelan enters a debate, uh, there's, only, there's only going to be one uh, um, leader. So then if you kind of, uh, the corollary of that, the proxy of that uh, would be Alan Kelly because Alan Kelly has been very closely associated with them. I think he's been very impressive uh, for the Labour Party. Um, you mentioned the name Alan Kelly to some of his colleagues. <laughs> you can see their lips curl with contempt. I've seen that happen. I'm holding yeah. their nose. He's not the most popular person within the uh, Labour Party. And certainly, yes, there is a bit of Wreck-It Ralph in terms of his mm. manner. You know, he's not, um, he's kind of bull in the china shop type of manner. But he is so impactful. Mm. And interestingly, he, he was in this podcast, I think, here this year, last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe you sat in on Harry and we asked him, what does the Labour Party stand for? in this day and age, and he gave the, the the clearest, most easily digestible definition of what he saw the party stand for. I was kind of struck by it. He said, my Labour Party, he said, stands for, you know, working families. And he had a real earthy way of putting it. You know, the couple who have a banger of a car and they don't have the money to, to change it. They don't, they have, they're they saving to go on one holiday a year and they might want to spare a few bob in the pocket to buy the kids a pizza on a Saturday night. And I thought, like, you know, that's just such an earthy way of selling what he believes the party to be. And despite, as you say, you know, some of his colleagues holler knows, I've never heard anybody else in the Labour Party express what the Labour Party stands for better than he did. Yeah, he's been, he's been, he's had a good year, you know. And is he, he a better place now to achieve his ultimate objective of leading the party? He, he, he probably is, but there's a, lot, there's a lot of resistance internally within them. There are others that the Labour Party are pushing forward, but not, not, not many of them are TDs at the moment. So we'll just have to see what the configuration of the, the Doyle is after the next election. And is the extension of confidence and supply then bad for Labour because they have to sit in this kind of essentially limbo I, I think, for more I think than it's a year. Go, I think it's good for Labour. I think it's good for most parties because I think if there was a general election in the in this this year or next year in twenty twenty nineteen, it would kind of um, upset the natural order of things. Usually, you have kind of local and European elections, and then the general elections. And parties, especially in a rebuilding or in a recovery phase, they really need local and European elections to give themselves a boost. Number one, to kind of if they do well in the European elections, it gives them great kind of confidence, mm-hmm. as happened to Finnegal back in two thousand and four. And then in local elections, they they can essentially blood their candidates, give them a, a springboard, uh, give them local representation, and give them some status. And that status 
in the community is always really important uh, when somebody then... And Jennifer, that timing is, is set nicely now, isn't it, for that political process which Harry refers to because we will have these elections in May next year and then people will have a chance to bed in and react to whatever their results are in time for the general election. Yeah, definitely. And it doesn't just apply to parties like Labour. It applies to parties like the Sock Dems and other parties that are trying to kind of get their stuff together. Um, kind of the one question I would have, I totally agree, and, and the importance of local and European elections for, for a party like Labour. But it's in, uh, my question is in relation to the timeline for Brendan Howland. Like, when is his time up? Like, when is enough for the party? You remember, Fiat, the Labour Party conference um, and, you know, we had our ears pressed to the door and we were hearing incredible things, you know, stuff that the the members were saying to uh, Brendan Howland that he, you know, wasn't capturing the public imagination, that people were disinterested. Mm. So that would be my question is when is the timeline for his, you know, when like when is it enough that people will actually instigate that um, leadership? It's only change? when Eona Reardon and Jed Nash get back into the doll, isn't that it? That's the time. That's the, that's, that, that, is the, that is the plan yeah. for the wider parliamentary party because the... You know, they they just view Alan Kelly with such trepidation that they're willing to mm. hold as they are until the next election and hope that somebody else comes along. But there comes a point, I think, when somebody wants something so badly that mm. there's just an argument to give it to them. Like, why not? What else have they got to lose? And he held his fire during yeah. that thinking as well. He did, yeah. And, and Harry, Harry is right. Like, he is the one person who makes an impact with the public. Yeah, it can be a bit over the top sometimes. Yeah, he can like give hostage to fortune by saying this is the biggest scandal that's ever hit the state, and then like, three weeks later you hear nothing about it, and it's hard to get comment on him from. But, like, <laughs> so like, true. Like, yeah. like everything, every, does that. everything is elevated to it. But he, yeah. he makes an impact, you know. Well but interesting on whether the, the no confidence supply thing no, is good never. for the parties as a whole. I think that what may happen is the two big parties will rise and squeeze the smaller ones because they have more time to prepare. They have. There's going to be a kind of a genuine clash between who do you want to teach with Michal Martin or Leo Varadkar. In that situation, you could see people like the Sock Dems and they were getting squeezed. There's things in life you just can't control, like the weather, the traffic, or the fact that spilled coffee seems to love white shirts. But it's all good, because there's something you'll always be able to control, your company's finances. SAP Concur integrates all your business's expenses, travel and invoicing in one simple solution, giving you the visibility and control you need to drive your business forward. SAP Concur. It's how the best-run businesses make their expenses run better. Learn more at concur.co.uk slash control. So, Harry, I want you to tell me one thing that actually disappointed you or you felt let down by in Irish politics this year and why. Um, well, the presidential election, obviously, uh, in my view, was just terrible. You know, we had one candidate who was head and shoulders above everybody else and you kind of wondered why some of the others had even bothered to to put their names in. I think people who have attained a certain position in Irish life uh, and a certain age and a certain status, their friends kind of, kind of say to them, God, you're a person with great authority. Why don't you stand? You'd be a great president for Ireland. And then they say, oh, yeah, that sounds good. And then they let the thought, uh, they lose the, the run of themselves with the thought and then they enter into probably the most brutal, personalised election in, in Irish politics. And what happens is, as soon as you enter the race, people start to tear strips off you. They, they start uh, investigating your, your past life, your public life, and also your private life. So anybody who has any hostages to fortune or any skeletons in the cupboard uh, will have them ruthlessly uh, exposed. What could we do to make it better, to make it a better contest? And well, it's a very difficult contest. because choice for people. Because it's not like a general election. You're not offering policies or you're not offering change. All you're offering is, is differences. It's almost like, you know, a, a, an interior designers convention 
where he kind of offered different kind of shades of pastel and magnolia, you know, and that's it. Values. Yeah, it's, it's so abstract. Uh, the president's powers are constitutionally so limited. So they have to look at, they all started talking about the soft powers. And after a while, when you listen to them all, expound on their kind of policies and views they all kind of mulched so into is this one unavoidable another. the previous contest was also pretty vicious and so were the, so were the, so were the ones back in the, some of the ones back in the 1990s as well. Yeah, well they, they do people want to know that the president is a person of good standing and of good authority authority and of great integrity and that's the thing the character yeah. of the president is what's tested the sales pitch for Michael D was quite clever in that regard and that it was you know a president who will do his proud at home and abroad and it's kind of like it was almost like he's not going to make a fool of the nation when we send him away he represents us too adequately at home I think that's kind of what people want someone they can look on and go yeah he's going to go an okay job well, that's obviously what they want because that's the job isn't yeah, it I mean do we, do we even need I mean other countries have similar ceremonial roles presidents the Germans for example they don't go through the rigmarole of a, I know elections are always supposed to be good but maybe they're not good sometimes maybe you should just get the Oireachtas to, yeah. to nominate the president yeah, I, I don't oh, know. No, I no, totally no. agree with that's you. Let's not be too hasty. It's a bit of fun let's, every seven years. Let's not lose the, the plot <laughs> entirely at the end of the year. <laughs> Listen to Harry. I don't think it sounds like a bit of fun. I'm not sure how much fun it was actually in the end. Was it? Listen, no. um, Fia, could, what, what, led, what were you disappointed by? Well, I suppose it's a, a set of circumstances. Um, I think the one thing I found disappointing in going back to the abortion referendum was when Michal Martin took the position he did within his party in January of this year. It was quite early in the process. It was when the referendum... Bill was going through the houses. Um, and then there was this kind of rolling kind of mode in Fianna Fáil for a couple of months into the referendum day. And some people in the party, it kind of congealed into this anti Miha Martin thing that not only were they dissatisfied with the position he took because they felt that Fianna Fáil was a pro-life party, it started to get kind of clouded into this, you know, almost talk that they would replace him as leader after the referendum because he'd made the wrong call. And I kind of thought when I looked upon the parliamentary party as a whole, that was very disappointing because Micheál Martin basically got a lot of them into the doll, that he picked them up in 2016. A lot of those TDs were brought in through more or less the hard work that he did in rebuilding that party. He has correctly called most of the big decisions, be it uh, the abortion decision, extending confidence supply, I think was the right decision. The presidency is the right decision. But there is still this rump in that party who try and attack him at but is that is, does, is that rump the people who Micheál Martin managed to bring in back at the last election or yeah. is it a more long-standing there, rump there, of people there, who have been there for a, longer it's a mixture of both there are people both who have been there for like there are the John McGuinnesses of this world um, who will always give out about him but there are other TDs in there who were brought in in 2016 came in on that Fianna Fáil uh, decent election performance who were all grumbling about him you know I remember taking a call from one TD, I think, the Sunday before polling day, saying, you know, couples were chatting tonight, we're going to have to get rid, get rid of Mihal when this is all done. And you're kind of like, going, are you, why are you actually hearing this? Mm-hmm. Like, these people want to take over the party and they're so out of step with public opinion. And again, he was proved right. But I kind of disappointed in the fact that they just refuse to be led by him and they will always book against whatever he decides to do. So I think that was kind of disappointing, I thought. Jennifer? Uh, my take? Mm. Um... I was thinking that it would be the whole handling of the cervical check controversy. I think Simon Harris has had this kind of two different years in a sense in that he's been publicly lauded for his role in the abortion referendum, his performances um, and the fact that he got it through basically um, and the legislation also put in the hard yards on that. But also his handling of the cervical check controversy left a lot to be desired and I think he would admit that himself. 
Um, if you look back at what happened, you know, Vicky Phelan came before the courts and it was that stage where alarm bells should have been going off, a plan should have been put in place, a helpline should have been set up immediately. Um, and none of those things happened. What we had was this kind of scattered um, response from the government. Simon Harris came out and said, we're going to find out what's going on. I don't think you should come out and say anything until you found out what's going on, especially when it involves women's health um, and the welfare of, of hundreds of families. Um, even a couple of days into the controversy, when, and I will include the media in this as well, um, but I will also kind of defend us in that we were given this misinformation a lot of the time late at night. And, you know, Simon Harris at one stage went into the doll. I think it was 20 to 8 or 20 to 9, and said that on his way in, he'd just been given these figures to show that around 1,500 extra women could be affected by the controversy. But he didn't know why, and he didn't know where the figures came from. And that was astonishing. I think, like, even if you're given information, take an hour or two to try and find out. Don't go straight into the doll and read out something like that. That's going to cause panic. And, you know, the opposition seized on it and said, this is a bombshell. This is, you know, incredible. This is the worst thing. This is the biggest healthcare crisis we've had in a decade. And I just think to let that narrative grow and to potentially endanger the whole cervical check programme, which thankfully has not come to pass, is very, very bad. Plus there were other elements such as, you know, uh, making a commitment that people wouldn't face any, wouldn't have yeah. to go into courts where they, where the government was not in a position to make that commitment no. because the, the, the liable parties were not actually yeah. under the control. The whole thing just yeah. kind of smacked of a, of a government panicking. Yeah. in that period and just doing whatever they needed to do to get themselves through the day and through the week and not thinking of the longer term consequences. Yeah. That whole episode just had that air about it. And I think yeah. Simon Harris is going to face a difficult year next year, I think, because, yes, passing of the referendum was a huge achievement, but he's kind of lived off the political capital of that now. And next year we're facing into a year where he has no real big projects apart from managing the health service an ongoing crisis so it's going to be I think next year's going to be a huge test for him the and honeymoon just, period the honeymoon end. period is over and there's no abortion referendum to bask in the glow of anymore and, we, yeah, and we'll see also his commitment that he would roll out um, or give free smear tests to anybody who wanted it I mean that has privately doctors you know and any medical professional think that was a really bad decision because it's led to this massive backlog of cases and what happens is if those um, slides are left they expire and that's an awful situation to be in. And so we'll see this and, and there's a court case actually coming up on this. And, you know, this thing is going to run and run and the, the consequences of the political mismanagement are massive. And that's just one of a series of potential uh, you know, And, and there are, I mean, it's complex. I mean, for example, I think his, 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 his statement that they wouldn't be contested was a very big mistake because mm. the, the state has to contest some of them because otherwise, you know, if you're, if you're a lawyer for a plaintiff, you're going to be asking mm. for, you know, the maximum amount of money and I mean that has to be tested so so that they come across with a, a fair Chat settlement. When Leo Varadkar made that statement on the six o'clock news on Friday evening, as far as I remember, I was recently chatting to somebody in RTE said that they were there and his hands were nearly shaking, shaking on yeah. that broadcast because they felt this was such a crisis yeah. and it was literally let's do what we can to get through this day and this week. And it was. Yeah, talk about the yeah. woman who died. Mm. I, want, I want to briefly ask you, because we're, we're kind of within an Irish political bubble here, but and, and Ireland in many ways is quite different in terms of what's happening politically than, you know, our close neighbours in the UK or what's happening in Europe or indeed in the United States. But it, what's happening here is influenced by all those things and the trends that are happening around the world are also either manifest themselves here or are likely to, to manifest themselves in the future. What big international thing that happened in international politics this year, Vic, do you think is going to change our lives here in Ireland? Can I say the obvious and say Brexit is the ongoing obvious one? That has an international dimension. That is going to affect our lives here in some way. We don't yet know the shape of it. The year has been dominated by what may happen, what may not happen. But 
I think, you know, we're facing a situation where we has, this hasn't been resolved. We're going to come out the far side of Christmas with a vote in the House of Commons on the withdrawal agreement. And that obviously will affect our politics because if the withdrawal agreement is passed, everything goes to plan, transition period, fine, no big economic shock. If it isn't, nobody knows what's going to happen. And that would have a huge upending nature on our politics, I think, if there were to be a hard Brexit, what kind of economic challenge would that have here? What kind of effect would it have on our party political system? That's the obvious one. Another one I think is, I think our political system is catching up to the environmental concerns of the public as a whole, that we have a, a belated debate on carbon tax now about how we introduce it, what shape it takes. I think that's been an international debate that's going on that we've only seen come into Irish politics in the last few weeks and months, largely since the budget, really. And I think that similar to social issues such as marriage, uh, gay marriage and abortion, the public might be ahead of the politicians on this and they may be ready to debate carbon taxation. Although as events in France issues. show, you know, you can you know, introduce you the deduction of carbon tax can create all kinds of political But tensions. if you do it in the correct way, so you've heard the government talk about the Canadian model where you introduce carbon tax but you offset that by giving people tax credits and welfare payments. That basically means they're not out of pocket. So they're paying more in tax but they're getting more back from the state. If it's managed well, I think the public may be open to it. I think that kind of goes into a wider international uh, trend you see with voters in general. There's a lot more fluidity, so there's a lot more pick and choose, you know. You talk about people who vote for repeal and then go to mass the next day. There's like kind of breaking down of those, you know, I'm, I'm in this camp, so that means I'm going to vote for X, Y, and Z. Well, I like a bit of this and this and this and this. I think that's a, an effect that we'll see in our electoral system anyway in the coming year. Harry, what's the international trend um, going to affect us? I, well, I think the climate change, the, 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 um, the conference that just finished in Poland was deeply depressing in relation to what needs to be done and what governments are actually doing and our own, our own government uh, is in the naughty corner in uh, relation to that. And obviously Brexit uh, as well. The thing that I that concerns me about Brexit is that we may end up with upholding all the principles and having a perfect victory. You know, we'll win the, 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 the battle, but, but not the war, that we will be able to kind of defend the, the backstop mm. onto the nth degree. But we'll be left with a hard Brexit and uh, one hell of a recession. And I just think that there's an imperative now that a political agreement as opposed to a legal agreement mm. Be, be reached and that they need to get, enter negotiations to do that. And, uh, you know, there are obstacles, but none of them are insuperable. We've seen with the peace process in the Northern Ireland that we see irre- irre- irreconcilable groups who have been able to come to an agreement. And unfortunately, it will involve a certain degree of fudge. It'll, it'll, it'll involve a certain degree of long fingering. But at this stage, I think there's an imperative that everybody try to avoid a hard Brexit. Does that involve a renegotiation of the text, which we have been told is impossible? Does that involve the, does that involve the Irish government um, I, I, I think it's, allowing for that? I, I think it needs to be in terms, I think it just needs to be in terms of sequencing and in terms of just set, setting out, um, you know, if, if X happens uh, in terms of uh, future relationships and a future comprehensive deal between Britain and the rest of Europe, you know, they, they, they can do it in terms of sequencing as opposed to, if you, leave the le- if you leave the legal text as is, it's a way of operating or implementing the legal text. Mm. And they need to have some kind of political agreement that, that e- enters some degree of flexibility that allows it to be interpreted in such a way that both sides can be, can be comfortable with it. I'm not sure if that's possible between now and January or now uh, and the 29th of March, but we just have to wait and see. But it all looks so depressing the, the, at the moment. The timing of that looks, extreme, I'm really worried. looks extremely unlikely. I, I'm just, I, I, if a hard Brexit would be a disaster. Mm. And I mean, people need to wake up and realise what the implications of a hard Brexit will be for this country. What's depressing is the language in which it's 
these type of nightmare scenarios have been normalised in UK politics. Like a managed no deal. <laughs> no deal. Like you, you, can't ma- you can't manage what would be a disaster, but the way it's put, it's been kind of entered public debate as a legitimate outcome of this process is quite frightening. Jennifer, what's happening around the world? Um, yeah, I was going to pick two things. The, the first, um, on a lesser scale, perhaps right now, would be Donald Trump's kind of, um, not obsession, but his focus on our corporation tax regime. Um, we all know that we're heavily over-reliant on a, a very small number of multinationals that gives us a huge, huge amount of money and increasing amount of money every year. And should that money ever be jeopardised, I don't think you'd be able to find all these extra billions for the black hole that is our health service. So, you know, that's one for the future. And secondly, I was also going to talk about Brexit, but um, I was going to pick out the Chequers meeting because it was really interesting. Like one of the most significant, I think, economic statements that Theresa May sort of made, probably that the the UK has seen in decades, and that it moved them slightly away from that harder Brexit to a softer Brexit, away from kind of a Canada deal to a Norway deal. Um, and you could tell that while she was out in public saying Brexit means Brexit, that privately perhaps she'd been convinced that a softer Brexit was the way. Um, and I think that was significant for Ireland, even though the EU made it very clear at the time that there would be no unravelling of the single market and there'd be no cherry picking, etc. It was viewed in uh, in the Irish government as a shift towards a more acceptable kind of Brexit and that she was slowly and torturously like, pushing her own MPs in that direction. Um, and I think that was significant for us. Now, as we've seen, it led to a rake of resignations and um, we are in the kind of you know, the disastrous situation that we're in now. But I think in the fullness of history, that sort of pivot will be seen as important. Right, well, I think the general consensus around the table in answer to that last question is Brexit, Brexit and Brexit, but also the the, the, the broader challenges of, of climate no change ahead no in no particular order. Listen, guys, thanks very much for coming in today. We will talk to you very soon. And that is it for today's podcast. Thanks to our producer Declan Conlon and engineer JJ Vernon. Thanks also to Fiat, to Jennifer and to Harry. Remember, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast provider is. And you can also find us at irishtimes.com slash podcasts. Your views are always welcome. You can find me at hlinahan at irishtimes.com or you can usually find me on Twitter as well. Talk to you soon.